Now, I would hasten to add my thanks to all who have come. I recognize that for some of you it is a huge sacrifice of time and effort, and I appreciate that. I know that for some it's a long journey to get here, and we don't take that for granted. And in light of that, I will do my very, very best to be prompt to close the meeting on time so that I don't take advantage of your kindness in coming. Now, this week in the will of God, we want to look at some subjects relative to the local assembly. And while there are a myriad of subjects that could be covered, and we'll just have to limit ourselves, tonight we'll be looking at the singularity of the foundation, one foundation for a local assembly. Tomorrow evening in the will of God, we'll consider something of the centrality of the Lord's Supper, how central it is to all we do and to the very character of assembly testimony. Wednesday night, Lord willing, we'll look at the necessity for prayer, not so much the need for prayer, but what we need in able to pray. So it might be better termed the necessities for prayer. Thursday evening, we'll consider the indispensability of boundaries, that God does believe in boundaries. Set a boundary about the Garden of Eden, and wherever God is working, he sets boundaries, and the indispensability of boundaries in a local testimony. And then in the will of God, Friday night, very likely, we'll take up the activity of, of shepherds, of shepherding in the assembly. That is the agenda then before us for the week, and I would covet the prayers and support of the believers as well in those efforts. Now we're going to turn this evening to 1 Corinthians and chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians and chapter number 1. And we're just going to read a few verses here in chapter number 1, beginning at verse number 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ with the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of our Lord, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now just four things to notice about the people who comprised this company referred to as Church of God. They were saved, they were sanctified, they were separated, and they were submissive to claims of lordship. All four of those things in that verse, they were saved, they were sanctified, set apart, called saints, they were separated, and they were submissive then, they recognized Jesus Christ as our Lord. The character then of those that comprise the assembly at Church of God at Corinth. Now turn, the rest of our reading will be in chapter number 3. I almost feel like I need to apologize to those who are older. This is very, very familiar ground and somewhat repetitive for what you have learned and enjoyed all of your lives, but we are to stir up our pure minds by way of remembrance. So... There is always value to truth that we have appreciated for years. We'll break in here at verse number 9. We are laborers, this is 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9. We are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, a wise architect, I have laid the foundation, another buildeth thereupon. 
But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. It shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. Now we do know that God will add his blessing to the public reading of his word. August 14th, 1173, that is almost 850 years ago, they laid the first stone for the foundation. And as they built that bell tower, in three years' time, it suddenly began to lean. They stopped building for a hundred years, and it's said that if they hadn't stopped, it would have collapsed even then. They kept building, and, and they eventually had seven levels to it. And upon the top, they put a number of bells, seven bells, upon the top of that tower. But it leaned, and worry began to mount that it was going to collapse. And over the next 850 years, because of a poor foundation, a foundation built upon an old estuary of, of sand, only about nine feet deep, for 850 years they struggled and did different things to try to fortify and to prevent it from continuing to lean. One occasion they drilled 651 holes into the foundation and poured 80 tons of grout in to try to, to stop the leaning tower of Pisa from falling over. For 800, In fact, everything they did for 850 years only made things worse. It kept leaning. Every intervention led to more leaning until just recently in the late 20th century, they were able to suddenly stop it. But tragically, along with the fact that the, uh, the tower became a tourist attraction rather than a, a functioning tower, its very function, the, the seven bells that they had placed in that tower, they had to, they had to cease ringing them for fear that the vibrations would, uh, would actually add to the collapse of the building. So its very function was lost. And the only function it serves today is for people to come and, and look at it and to marvel at the stupidity of, since I'm Italian, I can tell you, Italian designers who uh, planned this building and uh, it ended up leaning. A foundation is vital if something is going to not only stand erect, but function as God intends it to function. So we're going to be looking now at the singularity of the foundation for a local assembly. The basis, the building, the beautifying, and then the burning. It's all in this chapter. There's a field, there's a foundation, there's a fire. But we're going to be looking at the, at the basis for an assembly, at the building up of an assembly, of the beautifying of an assembly, and then of the day of at the Bema, when everything will be tested by the fire of God. So that's just what is before us for the meeting tonight. 
about five years before this chapter was written, about five years before Paul took up his pen to write a letter to the church at Corinth, he had gone to the city of Corinth. He had come with the gospel. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. And souls were saved as the result of his 18 months spent in the city of Corinth. As those souls were saved, they were baptized. They were separated from all of the evil, the immorality, the wickedness of the city of Corinth. And they were gathered together as an assembly, recognizing the claims of the Lordship of Christ. Paul says, when I was with you, chapter number two, I desire to, to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message I presented. He said, I realized that in Corinth, there was a tremendous attraction towards eloquence. There was a tremendous attraction towards personality cults. There was a tremendous attraction towards philosophy and psychology. He says, all of those things I purposely avoided, and in the very simplest of terms, I preached to you the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. They were gathered, but like all of us, they brought along with them some of the, uh, the baggage of their society. They were enamored with great men, with great ministries, and with, with great miracles, and so on. And so they, uh, they brought that mindset into the assembly at Corinth, and Paul is writing because that was affecting the assembly. It was having its effect upon their interaction, upon their functioning, upon their usefulness, and so he is writing in this epistle to correct many of those issues. And he comes then to the foundation for a local assembly. What then is the basis for a local assembly? What's his foundation? He says very clearly here, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now you may say, well, that's pretty obvious, pretty clear, but I want you just to think for a moment of the significance of the order in which Paul gives the names of the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul, as all of you know, Paul typically refers to the Lord Jesus as Christ Jesus, or Christ Jesus our Lord, or our Lord Jesus Christ. He very rarely, very rarely speaks of Jesus Christ. Now that's in contrast to the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, who knew the Lord Jesus here upon earth, Peter frequently refers to him as Jesus Christ. You read his epistles. He frequently refers to him as, he knew him first as Jesus, and then he learned of him as the Christ glorified. Whereas Paul, who did not know him on earth, speaks of him, first of all, as Christ. He had learned him as the, as the glorified, exalted man in heaven. He is the Christ, and he, he is Jesus. So Paul usually refers to him as Christ Jesus, Peter as Jesus Christ. But here, in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Paul speaks of Jesus Christ. Now, what's the significance? What does the name Jesus Christ mean? in contrast to Christ Jesus. And why does Paul specifically say, that's the foundation I laid? Jesus is the man whom the world despised. The world looked at him, there was no beauty they would desire him. The world looked at him, one of the translations of Isaiah 53 is, he gathered no great men around him. He didn't gather the great, the important, the impressive. He didn't go for the, uh, the stars of the day. He didn't go for the leading lights a bunch of itinerant fishermen in the eyes of people fairly ignorant, unlearned men. And so he didn't gather any of the great of earth. 
He didn't have any of the charisma that men look for. He had none of the characteristics that men look for in a leader, aggressiveness and assertiveness and pride and arrogance. None of that was found in him. There was no beauty in him that men desired. He was Jesus, despised, rejected of men. But he is the Christ, meaning God has found everything he wants in him. Now Paul says, here is the foundation I laid in Corinth. The foundation I laid was a man whom as the world looked at him, they found nothing attractive at all in him. There was nothing, there was, he did not buy into the values of his day. He was absolutely distinct from it all. But in contrast, heaven found everything in him. Now he says, that's the foundation. Now he says, make sure you build on that foundation. Now what does that mean? Now I, uh, I'm not a builder, far from it. Uh, very, uh, you don't want to see anything I've ever put my hand to as far as carpentry work. But I do know this, because I watched as they built a house for us. Everything takes character from the foundation. It's got to align with the foundation. Everything, everything has to take character from the foundation. So what Paul is telling us here is this, that if an assembly is built upon this foundation and is built true to the foundation, it will not look very attractive to the world. It will not be buying into all the values of the world around us. It will not appear to men as something really important, something really big, significant, and wonderful, just as they looked at Christ and said, insignificant. So they will look at an assembly and think, insignificant. Just as the Lord Jesus did not buy into the techniques and the values of his day, so a, a local assembly is not going to conform itself to a society around it, to, to appeal to it, and to attract it, and to make it seem acceptable to it. And so he says, Here is the, the, here's the estimation of men, but here is the evaluation that God has made. God has found in Christ everything that brings him pleasure. And God will found in his tilled field, in his husbandry, in his building, everything that brings him delight and pleasure. So then the critical question comes is, can I be sure I'm building on the right foundation? Be tragic to put all of your energy into something that wasn't the right foundation. Now, the God is the assessor of all, of all that men do. We're not here to criticize and, and judge whatever is perhaps gathered on some other basis. God is the judge of all of that. But I want to be sure that everything I am doing all of my efforts, all of my energy is being devoted to what is being built upon the right foundation. So we are not gathered, we are not building upon a group of doctrines. Well, that may come as a surprise. It's not as though we have a, a group of brethren doctrines and uh, we have 10 of them and you know, we've ticked off all the boxes, so we're good. It's not that at all. We are gathered to a person. And everything that we do and believe and hold flows from who that person is. We don't have a rule that women are silent and have their heads covered. We're gathered to Christ. And in recognizing his headship, our sisters cover their heads. Our brethren uncover their heads. Our sisters are silent. Our brethren speak publicly. We are gathered to, to, to the Lord Jesus 
And as head, he has poured out gifts, multiple gifts. And as a result, there's not one man ministry. There's a multiplicity of ministry in a local assembly. He is the chief shepherd, and there are under shepherds. So it's not a matter that we have certain doctrines that we follow, and uh, as long as you follow these doctrines, that means you're doing the right thing. We are gathered to a person. We recognize his name. We're not gathered to, we're not gathered to the doctrine of baptism. We're not gathered to a man like Mr. Martin Luther, who prayed that people would not be gathered to his name. We're not gathered to a method. We're not gathered to a, a form of government. We're gathered to a person. And we are built upon the foundation of that person, a person whom the world despised, a person the world rejected, a person the world found nothing attractive in, and we're linked with him. He is the basis. So that everything must be consistent with who Christ is. Everything is built upon who he is. We're reminded here, not just of the foundation, but this foundation is is the Uh, The basis then for what is called God's building, God's house. When you think of a house, you think of at least the three things. You think of ownership. You think of occupancy. And you think about order. When you think about owner, the owner of the house. Now, if I were to come to your house, you have absolute sovereign right to say what goes on in your home. I don't. I'm a visitor. I I have to comply with whatever the the house rules are. This is God's house. He has absolute sovereign rights to determine behavior in the house of God. So when Paul picks up his pen in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he tells us how one ought to, how one moral obligation, how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is church of the living God, pillar and ground of the truth. So as as owner, sovereign rights are his and not mine. But when you think of that as well, you think about the, the occupant. It is house of God. Now, the first place in your Bible that expression occurs is in Genesis chapter 28. Now, it's not a local assembly. It's Jacob coming to Bethel, house of God. You recall he's running away from his brother, and he is uh, trying to escape for his life, and he, he lights upon a certain place at night, takes a stone for his pillow, falls asleep, and has that dream where he sees the angels of God ascending and descending, and God standing beside the ladder, and he awakens, and he says, this is an awful, now that's the true meaning of the word, awful meaning full of awe, this is an awesome place, this is The house of God, this is the gate of heaven. So the first place you find house of God mentioned in the Bible, it's linked with at least four or five things that will be linked with the house of God throughout the rest of the word of God. Number one, it's a place of God's residence and it demands reverence. This is an awesome place. This is the house of God. So wherever God's residence is, it demands my reverence. Now, reverence is a principle that each of us has to apply in our own ways. Now, I grew up, and you're going to think I grew up in the dark ages, and I guess I did, uh, where uh, reverence meant you only wore a white shirt on Sunday, and you only wore black shoes, and uh, 
If you really wanted to be really reverent, you wore white socks. Don't ask me what that has to do with being reverent. But uh, you know, we do have strange ideas, don't we, sometimes? Anyway, uh, now, I, that's, that's how they applied reverence back then. And uh, you never chewed gum in meeting, and uh, you tiptoed into meeting, and once you got sat down, you never got up until the meeting was done. Although, you know, now, I'm not saying that that's the definition of reverence. But what I am saying is, in the presence of God, decide what is reverence. Don't throw everything out because think of how those, old, those people used to think of reverence. It's just a lot of, it still demands reverence. Make sure you have some standard of reverence that you apply to your own life when you're in the presence of God. His residence demands reverence. But as well, when he spoke of it being the gate of heaven, I used to read that and think for years he meant this is like the, this is the closest place to heaven, but that's not what he means. In the Old Testament, the gate was always the place of authority, always the place where decisions were made. Remember that when Abraham wanted to purchase a field to bury Sarah, he sat in the gate. You remember that when Boaz wanted to purchase Ruth to be his wife, he went to the gate. Remember how they spoke of Lot? He was a judge sitting in the gate. So the gate of the city was always the place of authority. So that a local assembly is the place of authority and administration. Through the word of God, this is our authority. The word of God in the hands of men who are responsible to lead the assembly is God's authority and it is administered through the word of God to us. So house of God, residence, his residency, and reverence. Administration and authority. There is no higher authority for believers upon earth than a local assembly. There's no group of assemblies. There's no group of preachers. Nothing goes higher than the oversight of an assembly. That's Matthew chapter 18. Tell it to the church. That's as far as it goes. Now that has implications, but we don't want to stay there right now. One or two other things just to mention. It was a place as well of angelic attendance, wasn't it? The angels were ascending and descending. It was a place of angelic interest and attendance. Interesting. The first place you have house of God mentioned in the Bible, you have angels. What does Paul say when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? For this cause ought a woman to have a sign of authority on her head because of angels. And you might say, why would angels be interested in a woman, in a local assembly, having her head covered and being in the place that God has given her to be in. First place an angel speaks in the word of God. If this were a Bible reading, I would uh, ask some of you. But it's not, right? Okay. First place an angel speaks in the Bible. You know what she says? He says? Says to a woman, return and Submit to Hagar, Genesis 16. There were angels who once had the privilege of standing before the sapphire throne of God, ministering in God's presence, and one-third of them decided they did not want to submit, and they fell. They followed Satan and his Lucifer in his rebellion, and they were cast out. So that there were angels who refused to submit. And they had the privilege of actually 
being in heaven, being before the presence of God, uh, being in that incredibly majestic, and they, and they fell. Now angels that did not fall, what are called the elect angels, they are looking on. And they see upon earth individuals who intelligently, who voluntarily, and who gladly submit and take the place God has given them. That's why he says in First Corinthians, for this cause ought a woman to have a sign of authority on her head because angels are looking on, learning, learning the great principle of submission as displayed by our sisters. So angelic interest and attendance. And we could touch on as well the fact that there was commitment and consecration. You remember that Jacob, the first thing he does after he awakens, he builds a, he sets up a stone pillar and pours oil upon it and makes his vow, if God will be with me and bring me again to the place which I come, I'll give him a tenth and so on. So there was commitment and consecration and house of God demands, requires commitment and consecration if we are going to see it flourish and be all God intends it to be. So the basis then, the foundation for this house. Let me quickly come then, if I can, to the, uh, the building or the framework, if you will, of this house. Let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. So this has very practical, it has very, very searching implications for us. There was a, a mentality which was a barrier. As you look at uh, things that can hinder building for God, competitiveness. Now that was going on at Corinth. Everyone wanted to be the star. Everyone wanted to have the uh, front row. Everyone wanted to have their 15 minutes of fame. Paul had to deal with it as well back in Philippi, or not in Philippi, but had to deal with it in Rome when he was imprisoned and wrote to the Christians in Philippi about it. He was in prison and some were preaching Christ out of strife supposing to add gall to Paul's bonds, making Paul feel like, here I am helpless, and all these men are out preaching, and they're getting all the attention. Paul said, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not in this business for, for competition. I'm thankful Christ is being preached. So competitiveness can hinder. And conceit, the other extreme of uh, thinking everything begins and ends with me. What about Conflict. Batting heads together in the assembly. That can hinder usefulness. That's, that can hinder building. And of course, then there's complacency. What, what good am I? What, what use am I? I can do so little. I can accomplish so little. I mean, I'm hardly noticed in the assembly. We have to change our thinking. We have to drastically change our thinking relative to service and relative to usefulness for God. We have bought into... We have bought into the thinking that the more prominent the gift, the more public the gift, the more seemingly successful the gift, the greater the honor God gets and the greater the reward of the judgment seat of Christ. That is absolutely wrong. 100% wrong. God does not reward gift. God does not reward, and I'll put it in quotation marks, success. God rewards faithfulness. What that means is, if you have been given a Sunday school class to teach of five, six, seven-year-olds, 
And you do it to the very best of your ability, with all of the ability God gives you, and you do it faithfully. Your reward at the judgment seat of Christ very likely will be as great as the public individual with a greater gift if he has been faithful with his gift. God will reward faithfulness. So whatever you have been given to do, whatever, whatever ability God has given you to do, whatever place you can fill in God's assembly, if he has given you that gift, there is no one that can do what you are doing as well as you are doing it. We fail to do what we can do because so often we lament what we can't do. But just doing what God has given us to do, we have the potential of honoring him and also reaping a tremendous reward at the judgment seat of Christ. I have to hurry. These verses, I'll just mention them without any detail and without any elaboration. What, is, what mentality is needed for building? You'll notice that, first of all, there is an awareness that, number one, God is the ultimate blesser. Number two, an acceptance that even though God is the ultimate blesser, in verse number six and seven, I must assume personal responsibility to do what I can do. Verse number six, he speaks as well of the ambition to glorify God alone in verse number five. He speaks of the unity in labor in verse number eight. So all, this mindset, it's all for God, it's all about him, it's all for his glory, but yet I've got to bear my responsibility, work in unity with my brethren. The work is one. We're not in competition together. And the work is one, and we seek to help. What is, it that, what is it that people seek so often and uh, think that we're lacking? Number one is size, isn't it? Not, uh, not very comforting when you uh, tell your Christian friends. So they ask you, where do you go? I meet with believers who gather to the Lord's name. Um, how many are there? Well, they're about 45 or 50. Hmm. We've got 500. We don't have room in our parking lot for them all. Because size somehow means they're right. And of course, the other thing that people buy into is not just size, but, but success. We had an evangelistic campaign, and we had 50 decisions in one week. And so you slug away at the gospel and uh, have a month of tent meetings and three, three or four people saved. And they look at you, why waste your time? And uh, you invite them along to your meeting, and uh, well, this is pretty boring. I mean, there's no band. There's no, uh, no videos going on around you. I mean, you just sit there and, I mean, so size, success, the sensational. Where'd they get all that from? Where did we get the idea that size means everything is right? That's from the religious world. What about the idea of success? That's corporate America. That's the business world. What about sensationalism? That's the entertainment world. And all of that, all of those uh, standards somehow become the, uh, the standard that people hold up to judge. No, look, the foundation. Foundation wasn't very, very sensational. The foundation wasn't marked by great size. In fact, when the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest evangelist, left planet Earth, what were there, 500 people? 
that he could count as followers? I mean, that wouldn't be considered a, a very successful ministry in today's marketplace. And as far as success, I mean, he died upon a cross, labeled a criminal, labeled an imposter, scorned and rejected. So there was no size. There was no success. There was no sensationalism. And Paul says, an assembly built on that foundation is not going to carry the insignia of success in the eyes of the world or sensationalism. It's going to be marked by just exactly what marked the foundation. So, building. Could I say something about beautifying? Let me just dip back into the Old Testament again for just a minute. One of the most unsung, I'll use the word heroes, poor word to use, but for the one of a better word. One of the most unsung heroes in the Old Testament is a man named Ezra. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. That's a, a moral order that is vital. Ezra chapter 7. To seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it in his own life. You know what happened because of that? Here's what we read about that. He beautified the house of the Lord. He, he made the house of God beautiful to God. A man who wanted to build, a man who wanted to contribute, he beautified. So here Paul speaks about how to beautify the house of God. Gold, silver, precious stone. Here is what is attractive to God. Here is what is of value. Gold is small but weighty. You link it, of course, with the person of Christ. It may be small, but it's got weight to it. I mean, the wood, hay, and stubble is, uh, is very impressive in its size. But the wood, hay, and stubble is, is big, but it's not going to stand the test of the fire. But the gold, while it's small, has tremendous weight and character. And silver and precious stone. What he is telling me is this. That there is nothing too precious when it comes to building for God. Now, let me just stop for a moment. How precious is the assembly to you? Is it merely a matter of convenience? Is it a matter of family ties? Is it a matter of uh, comfort? You know, nice people, nice, we just kind of get along well, and they have nice snacks at noon on Sunday, and uh, they make the coffee very nice, and uh, it's a nice place to be. Are you willing? Are you willing to pour your life into what pleases God? Nothing too precious. Nothing too valuable. Gold, silver, everything of value is built. Nothing is too costly. It deserves my best not what just gets by. Now that's going to involve choices in life. Choices. As I make choices, I've got to think about this. Will it please God? And will it enable me to contribute to the assembly and its future and its blessing? That's going to affect my careers. It's going to affect where I live. It's going to affect who I marry. It's going to affect my friends. It's going to affect my leisure time, how I spend my extra time, all of that is going to be all centered around this. 
Am I going to be able to give God my best? Or is he only going to be able to get what's left over after everything else? He deserves my very, very best in life. Having a vision for building for God. Hard to really stress how vital it is to desire to build and have, have the right vision for building. It was back in 1978, a man by the name of Ian Nachman, a man in Israel, after Israel's six-day war in 1967, he realized how valuable, how important an area of North and Samaria was. It was a desolate, deserted area. The Arabs called it the Hill of Death because it was so barren and so desolate. But he knew this is a strategic place if we ever attacked again. We have to, we have, to have a city here. We have to have a presence here. And so in 1978, he led 49 families out from civilization to a barren desert area in Samaria. It was so devoid of anything, helicopters had to drop in water, had to drop in tents, had to drop in supplies. He had a vision. He wanted to build. He wanted to build something in light of the future. Today, that city is a city of 20,000 people called Ariel, city, the Lion of God, a computer center, a university is there because a man had vision and wanted to build. Do you have any vision for the assembly? As you see children running around, do you have a vision for those children? Do you have a vision for the neighbors? Do you have any kind of vision to, to see the assembly grow and, and prosper, willing to pour yourself out that it might be accomplished and might be blessed? Nothing too good. The gold, the silver, the precious stone, all valuable, all vital, all things that can add tremendous value to God's assembly. But we're reminded here, not only of the material, but of the motives and the methods. All of those we've touched on already. Building for God on the right foundation. So let me just come then to the, the bima that we're reminded of at the close of the chapter. If any man's build, if any man's work abide, we're reminded here in verse number 12, verse number 13, every man's work shall be made manifest. The day shall declare it, for it shall, the fire shall try every man's work. Now notice what it says. I, I wish I could somehow stress these words and imprint them upon young minds. It will try every man's work, not of what size it is, of what sort God is more concerned with quality than with quantity. He is concerned with what kind of work it is, of what sort it is. Is it the kind of thing that reflects my glory, the gold? Is it the kind of thing that reflects the redemptive price of Christ, the silver? Is it the kind of thing that reflects the glories of Christ, the precious stones? Is it all of that? I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, that the, uh, the fire is going to consume the wood, hay, and stubble. It will be no more. But what is of value to God is going to last eternal. So let me just quickly then mention to you, just in these last few moments, I want to talk to you first of all about the test of the fire. The test of fire. 
The day will declare it. We were reminded here of a day declaring it, of fire devouring it, and of his eye discerning it. Is what I am building into God's assembly. Now, I'm honest enough to realize that at the very best, at the very best, our motives frequently are not as pure as you'd like them to be. Even when you think your motives are pure, you quickly find that uh, they're not. And you begin taking pride in your pure motives and uh, you, go down, you go down that rabbit hole and you just feel like giving up. But uh, you'll understand, uh, God graciously deals with us despite our, our lack of absolute purity in our motives. There's only, only one man that ever moved here whose every motive was absolutely pure and devoid of any thought of self. Self is so incurably evil that it always looks for something, some credit to take, some, uh, some honor to get from whatever it is doing. But God is able to, to, to deal with all of that and separate all of that out, the wheat from the chaff, thank God. But his eye in that day will discern is what I have built by my... Now, I know that this chapter is primarily dealing with teaching and men who teach the word of God in God's assembly, but... All of us are either building up or breaking down, one way or the other. We're either building up or breaking down. And by the contributions we make, we are doing one or the other. So that the, the principle of this chapter, while it may be in its strict interpretation limited to those who teach, the principle flows beyond just the context. We are all building Everyone is either adding to or taking from. That day is going to declare whether we have added to or taken from God's assembly. So you have the option. You have the privilege. You have the potential to build for God in your own day. You may think that your contribution is very small. You may think that your Ability is very, very limited. You may think that your gift is small in comparison to others. Well, you just give what you have. Wonderful to go through the, through the Word of God and look at uh, individuals who had very little. There was a little maiden down in Naaman's house, and she simply told what she knew. She didn't give a long sermon. just told what she knew. There was a boy that had five loaves and two fishes. He gave what he had. There's a woman that had just an alabaster box of ointment. She poured it out upon the one she loved. A, a, a widow with two mites, and she's become a, an object lesson for the last two millennia. People who had very, very little, and yet they became tremendously useful in the work of God. So don't sit back and say, there's very little I can do. In the end, let me just take you to Luke chapter, Luke chapter 19 for just a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ told a parable because they were looking for the kingdom of God to come and uh, he spoke about going into a far country and uh, dividing up the pounds. Listen to what he says to the man that gains 10. We would think there is a success story. He says, you've been faithful in very little. Very little. See, the most any of us can ever do is very, very little. When you think of the great kingdom of God and you think of the great work God is doing down through the dispensation, we're all just little, little pebbles 
But thank God we can do something. We can add something to what God finds pleasure in. So here is a day, the test of the fire. The, the, the truth that will be manifested of what sort it is. We mentioned that God is more concerned with character, with quality than quantity. This chapter details for us foolishness, emptiness, craftiness. This is all of those things. They have no place in building for God. Not interested in the foolishness of men's wisdom. Not interested in the craftiness of men. Not interested at all in the uh, emptiness, the, the vanity of what people do. He says all that is going to be just burned up in light of a coming day. It all means nothing. There will be something that will last, the test of the fire. A testimony for eternity. If we turned over one chapter, or turned back one chapter, chapter number three, listen to what Paul says. He's dealing with the issue of people judging him for his motives. He says, that doesn't bother me. He says, I'm waiting for a day when everything will be made, when the secret things will be revealed, what is dark will come into the light. He said, then, then, not till then, then shall every man have praise of God. Would it be worth pouring your life into the assembly? making all of your choices, not on what I would like, not on what is going to make me a lot of money, not what is going to further my career. Would it be worthwhile making every choice based on what is going to honor him, how it will help the assembly? If I knew in the end, when I get to heaven, he would say, well done. To be able to walk into eternity with the praise of God ringing in my ears. Then shall every man have praise of God. Reminded here of something that is going to last eternally. Something that will last forever. The honor, the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. It's only a year and, what is it, three or four months? since the Rio Olympics in 2016. There were individuals who sacrificed years of their life. Now, if you've ever known anyone who's trained for, for an Olympics, you'll know what I'm saying. They, they literally train years of their life, sacrifice legitimate things, spend money for personal trainers, try to hone their skills to the very best of their ability because they're going for the gold. You know, the people that won the gold at Rio in 2016, their metals are already corroding. They used an inferior metal. And they're writing back to the Olympic Committee complaining that their, their metals are, are already tarnishing and uh, almost prophetic of, of uh, what we have in the Word of God, an, a corruptible crown, things corrupting. Imagine spending your life with a goal of trying to get that, that precious metal. And as you watch it, it's just, just kind of crumbling in your very hands. Here's something that will never, never cease. What you and I do to build on the right foundation, what we add to the foundation, what we build upon the foundation, we are reminded here 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if it passes through the fire and it withstands the test of the fire, then shall every man have praise of God. It's worth going in for. It's worth giving all of your very best years and effort to see God's assembly blessed and prospered. A man named William James, he's not a believer by any means. He was an American philosopher. He said this, and while he was not thinking of spiritual things in the least, I think it has tremendous relevancy. He said, the best use of your life is to use your life for something that will outlive your life. The best use of your life is to use your life for something that will outlive your life. May God bless his word. Shall we pray?